Welcome to Quantum Leap, sponsored by PBX. We've got some amazing content for you. Episodes stacked full of ideas, inspiration, and insights. All highly valuable knowledge to help you grow your business. Hello, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the next segment of the QBS show. It is indeed my pleasure to introduce a guy that I've personally known for over 40 years. I first met him in 1976 when he was making sales. He's doing, still doing sales training. He's still doing events. He's been to fantastic places like the Kremlin. Uh, he's written over 30 million books. Uh, been um, 11 times the true number one best-selling author. Uh, and that's not just uh, a little one on Amazon for five seconds. This guy is uh, the real deal. And uh, him and his wife are a pleasure to work with and a pleasure to know. And uh, you'll get a great deal of fun with his uh, series on body language and his uh, talks on life. I'd like to welcome Alan Peace. Good morning, Alan. Well, good yeah, afternoon. Well, long, long time no see. Yes. <laughs> Oh, we, we were just talking a little bit there about our old days back uh, with insurance back in the 70s when I was with MLC and uh, you were with National Mutual. What, uh, what do you recall about those days? Well, they were the, really the heady good fun days and uh, I was in the life insurance business for 12 years and I finished up with Lion Insurance Brokers out here in Australia that you might remember with, with Kerry Packer yep. and Tony Griggs. When Tony came out of being captain of England, his first job was to was to get the, be the face of line insurance breaker. So I, I was the guy who ran the sales part of it, and Tony was the face, and Kerry Packer had the television station. And uh, they were they were fabulous, though, because they were great change in the insurance business. It was going from a tired agency to an open agency, which it is today, a broken agency. It was good fun, and I I loved it. I, I remember with uh, Greggy going, to get the lawyer on the line. Yeah, well, that would become his catchphrase. Yeah, you walk down the street with him, and people would be sticking their heads out the window saying, Get the lion on the line, Tony. I'm laughing. <laughs> so, uh, this is also going out, uh, aside from our industry, Alan, out to the International Reciprocal Trade Association uh, uh, guys up in uh, you know, 30 odd countries, but primarily in North America. Uh, yeah. We were both part of uh, the Life Underwriters Association and the uh, Million Dollar Roundtable. Well, what uh, what do you remember about being part of association groups like that? Well, the great thing about association groups is you get to you get to meet like-minded people who have similar goals. That's the great thing about it because you know the slowest way to succeed in any business, John, as you know, is to reinvent the wheels, to not know what you're doing and start from scratch. Where in an association, you can pick the brains of people who've been there, done that, and and associations, you know, they're usually happy to show you the way to go. So it saves a lot of time and ramps up your success, and that's the the big benefit of being in any association, I think. Yeah. So, uh, Alan, back in the early days of your uh, uh, writing career, author career, uh, you had a chance to collaborate with a pretty well-known person who ended up writing a fairly well-known book. Can you just share that story? Well, yeah, that's one of those one of those fun stories. He was a very good friend of mine, and uh, back in the in the late seventies. I had body language was the book was number one worldwide and it was being turned into movies and TVs here. It was a great success. And, and uh, this particular gentleman came out from Newport Beach. He stayed at my home and he said, look, I've got an idea for a book. He said, here's the first promo of it. He said, how about you and Barbara become the, the non-American authors that we can do it as a joint venture? So he showed me the book and I read it and I said, look, it just sounds like a load of American bull to me, mate. 
said, it's all short stories like Reader's Digest. And I said, and I said to him, Mark, who's ever going to buy a book called Chicken Soup for the Soul? And he said, what, what even is Chicken Soup for the Soul? And he said, oh, it's, it's an old Jewish remedy for when you're sick. Because you know, he sold 600 million copies of that series to date. <laughs> so uh, interesting story how, uh, how things can change. So you've, uh, you've not done so bad yourself, Alan. You've uh, written eight, 18 bestsellers and uh, 10 number ones. But uh, for the people out there, and we do have some people out, aspiring authors and uh, and speakers and whatnot, what uh, what are your tips uh, on how to write a best-selling or a book or indeed a number one? Well, yeah, there's a couple of things. First, I've, I've written 18 top tens. I've had 11 number ones in a row, and that's a really significant thing, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit later how that happened. That wasn't an accident. That came by design. When I say number ones, I'm not talking about Amazon uh, one hour number ones. I'm talking about Times bestsellers, you know, the really solid stuff. Well, if you're going to write a, a book of any type, the first thing is, why not write a bestseller? I mean, it's just, it takes just as long to write a bestseller as it does to write a book. And I decided using that philosophy, why not write just number ones? And I, I had to write number ones for a good reason. I needed to succeed and get the income coming from number ones because I'd gone down the plug hole in the mid 90s. I went down the plug hole. Our, accounting firm ripped us off and all the body language for 25 years, the homes on the water and flying around the world in planes and horse riding ranches. You know, I, was, I come from housing commission, state housing. So I was living like the typical dream and we lost it all. And by the time by the time I got to 45, my objective was to get to 50 and be worth nothing by the time we paid all the debts back. And so I decided, well, it's just as easy to write a number one bestseller as to write a bestseller because if you look at the statistics for books, 94% of all manuscripts submitted to a publisher don't even get read, they get rejected. Now, don't call us, we'll call you. And those who do get accepted and published, 92% of those hardly sell more than 3,000 copies. So your chances of being a bestseller overall statistically are about that big. They're not much. However, even though it's not that much, why can't you be in that not much? So I decided I would only be in the small percentage of people who succeeded because clearly they're doing something that the other 98% aren't doing. And the starting point is if you're going to write a book and everybody, well, 60-something percent of people I reckon now, the studies show that they think they've got a book in them and usually they're trying to purge something that they feel or get rid of their knowledge or put you know, put something out in the world to help people. Uh, if you decide to write a bestseller, it focuses the way you think. So suddenly you start seeing best-selling lists everywhere and that shows you the titles that people are paying for. You go to the Amazon or anywhere on the internet Look at the top 20 bestsellers, and that shows you the titles and the information that people are prepared to give you, $20, $30, $50, whatever it is. So we decided to write at one point only number ones, and that changed how we wrote books because prior to that, uh, I'd written four bestsellers. Two were number ones, two were top tens. And I was writing books, John, the people, when you remember, the people really should have, like how to remember names, faces, and lists. Now, everybody says, oh, look, I need that book. I can't remember people's faces. And everybody agreed we would definitely buy it, but they didn't. They didn't buy it. We had to get on TV and sell the living hell out of this thing to sell 200,000 copies, which was a lot. But compared to my other books, which are sold in tens of millions, that was not a lot. So uh, rather than writing books that people really should have that they'd agree with, like how to write letters, faxes, and emails to get people to say yes when you've only got print, which everyone said, I want that book. But they don't go into a bookstore or online and say, I must find it. We decided to buy what people would knock us over in a rush for to get. And that was the secret of writing number ones. What is it that you don't have to sell yourself to people? They say, I want that book when they see it. And so we started coming up with the first title we came up with, with was Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps. And that went number one worldwide, sold 13 million copies. 
that was our recovery from from uh, going down the plug hole. In fact, we went past the plug hole. We're still three and a half million dollars in debt. We had to pay it back to to the tax office, and you can't negotiate it with them. Uh, they want the money back. Yeah. So that was the first one. The second one was why men don't have a clue and women need more shoes. So we're coming up with titles that we tested with the market. But people say, yes, yes, that's my life. I want that. We said, if you really want that, give us a $10 deposit or pay in advance and you'll get a, a special copy. And they did. And the sequel sold $3 million. sequel after that sold another $2.5 million. And that was the secret to writing number ones, is writing what people want as opposed to what you want to tell them what they really should have. We said, what we've been doing up until that we sell hundreds of thousands and even with body language we sold six million but normally you sell 500 to a million which is a pretty good number but we needed to sell five and ten million to be able to financially recover and do it and it was a process and it takes a bit of courage to do that but look it takes just as long to write a bestseller as it does to write a book that's probably nobody's going to read that's the point yeah so what body language, a brilliant, uh, brilliant input, Alan, and I can certainly resonate with uh, why I, my wife always accuses me of not listening, and I can tell you she certainly doesn't know how to read a map. <laughs> yeah, not uh, alone, mate. <laughs> certainly resonates. Um, so body language was the first one to really take off. What was the inspiration for that? Well, I've, all my life I've been a salesman. I come from state housing in a little country town in Victoria, which is right in the deep south of Australia. Uh, population 820 people in that little town that I came from and for 20 years they had the sign there lawn victoria welcome 820 population the standing joke was because every time a baby's born a man left town so the population <laughs> remained the same <laughs> 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 but when my father moved to melbourne when i was a teenager prior to that i'd been knocking on doors selling everything from rubber sponges to anything i could sell to make money because you know, we never had any money and my dad who was an insurance salesman for the district said, look, Alan, if you want to make money in your life, you've either got to be a doctor or you've got to be able to knock on doors and sell. I said, well, can I do both? He said, yeah, you can do both. So I'd been knocking on doors selling after school from the time I was a kid. I did that right through my teenage years. And because I was a top sailor, I would always win everything. Invite me to all these groups to talk and sell. And part of what we talk about in selling was how to look at a person, identify by their movement, gestures, behaviour, what, what their intentions could be. So I thought everybody recognised that when you sat back and when somebody said something, you may put your hand on your chin, that you were rejecting what that was. And when they leant forward and tilt their head, they're more likely to say yes. And, and the reason I knew about that, because back in the 50s when I was a kid, my dad used to listen to these LP records, long playing records, on this little HMV player when he, when he was in the insurance business by people like Dale Carnegie who in the 50s was you know, the big guru of, of self-development. And, and uh, he talked about setting goals and writing them down, having deadlines and time limits. So I got into that frame of mind as a, as a kid. And in the late 60s, part of the segment in my selling course was how to identify behaviour, which was so popular. I thought this could be a standalone book. And so then I decided to write a book called How to Read the, La the Body Signals of Your Customer, which is too many words for a title. So we cut it down to body language. And that was how body language was born because we had too many words to fit the cover. We just cut it down to fit it. And in 1976, that came out and it, it wasn't an immediate success. It uh, took about a year and a half for people to really get the, because they'd never heard of this before. Nobody knew what this was about. And by the time I got on television and started to really sell the hell out of it, uh, it took off, and then by 1980, it was number one worldwide. It was an absolute 
cracker. And then it got turned into movies, it got turned into training courses, and it became, you know, it became a, a complete genre of its own. And there's not there's no course anywhere in the world now in college, universities, training courses, management that, that doesn't have it in there. So uh, I, I got I got dubbed Mr. Body Language by American Reader's Digest with a big front page article, you know, back in the in the early 80s. And that's kind of stuck with me ever since. And uh, that's how it started. It started because I, I spotted a market because the public was saying to me, look, if we had a book on this, we would buy this. Where can we find out more? So I decided to write a book on it. Now, if you write a book based on what you feel you want to get out and to purge, well, that's fine. But you've got to remember that statistically, the chance of it selling more than a couple of thousand copies are very small if it even gets published. Yep. But, but if, the, if, the, if the audience, if the, pup, if the population are telling you, we want this, you go and get it to them at a good price, basics are selling, and you've got a runaway hit. Yep. So you, you do a lot of work with uh, your wife, Barbara, and uh, I know when I'm at home, I've been in sales all my life, and uh, I get to certain points when I'm having a conversation with my wife, and she'll say, stop objection handling me. I know your process. Uh, <laughs> da, da, da. That must uh, present some interesting uh, conversations at times. Yeah, you've worked together, so uh, share that uh, journey, the joys and what have you. Well, look, you're right. Yeah, Barbara and I, we've been married for 30 years and we lived together seven days a week. And for the first 25 years, it was seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We're hardly apart. You need special skills to do that with your partner. You really do without murder. You really need to have special skills. And we got to a point that when we first met, when Barbara and I met, she, she was a body language trainer. She'd been stealing my material and copying my videos. And I heard about this when I was in town. So I went around to see her to put an end to it, which, which I did. <laughs> and um, we did, when we decided to write only number one bestsellers, we'd been in Italy at the time, driving a car on the highway, heading for the airport, and there were two main airports in Italy. We were going to the wrong one. I was driving. She's got a map, and she's turning it around, trying to get it to match something on the horizon. And I said, look, you know, if you could read maps, we wouldn't be lost here. She was saying, well, if you'd stop and ask directions, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And so... Uh, was an, it was a, a sort of a, an interesting event that she made me stop the car on the motorway in Italy and she got out and hailed a cab. And I followed her in the cab all the way to the right airport. And I can still see her face in the back of the cab, waving at me, not using all five fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and that was where we decided that we, we got to a point after three years that many couples get to where uh, can't live without them, but can't live with them. This is a pretty common situation. I mean, I, I didn't want to live without her and she loved me to bits. Who could blame her? Um, but but if I could murder her at the same time, and anybody listening to this who's been in a relationship well knows what I'm talking about, we got to that point that we figured if we couldn't work out and resolve and manage the differences between us, uh, we're heading down the wrong track. We're heading for the separation track. So we wrote a list of everything about each other that we couldn't live with anymore. And we showed it to our mates and family and friends, and guess what? They all had the same issues, even though many of them had never admitted it because we never – now, people don't discuss these things – but they had the same issues. And so then we put out to our database, we're thinking about writing a book about the relationship differences between men and women. This is at a, at a politically correct time where it was fashionable to go around pretending that men and women think the same way, want the same things, which if you had any experience with the opposite sex, you know that's just not true. Yep. We think very differently and not better or worse, just differently. And poor old millennials and Gen Ys, they've been sucked into this concept of we all want the same thing the same way. And and those poor devils can't hold down a relationship. Barbara and I have six kids. We have two X's, two Y's, and two millennials. <laughs> and we have nine grandkids. So we've got our own social experiment going on here with all this stuff. And, 
and those poor guys, I mean, boys think now today, you don't have to woo a girl, don't have to take her out to dinner and tell her she's beautiful and do all the things that you and I did in our area. However, however independent a woman may be, she still wants you to hold a door open for her. She still wants you to pay for dinner. And if you do that, you're going to score points. There's no doubt about it. Now, we wrote a list of all the things we couldn't stand and decided to come up with solutions. Where do these things come from? What is the biology or the, the or the evolutionary evidence as to why we do Like, why can't I find butter in the fridge when I look? I can't see it. And she puts her arm in and suddenly it appears from nowhere. How does these things happen? And it happens to three billion other men as well on the planet, John, including you. Absolutely. <laughs> I could never find stuff and she couldn't park the car properly. She can run five businesses worldwide as a CEO and she's great at it, but she couldn't reverse park to save her own life. And that was always an issue because sometimes when we go to meetings when we're living in the UK, I had to go into a meeting early and she had to park the car and that was, that was a tension point. And so once we decided we wanted to save our own marriage, that was where it started. And all of a sudden, people, their population, our friends' rallies and our databases said, if you had a book on that man, I would definitely buy that. So we said, well, that's true. Send us $10 and we'll write it. And they did. Yep. And we wrote it and it sold $13 million. So it started through necessity, really. And, and in business, certainly, Barb and I have not had an argument about business for almost 30 years. She runs all the businesses. I only do three things in the business. She doesn't come into my camp and comment unless I ask her. And I don't go to her camp unless it's really necessary, which I don't want to. And we become famously in business, which is unusual and rare. Our business life is 90% of that, 10% of the, of the time the furniture the furniture might suffer. But 90% of the time, it is, it's a damn good relationship. And if, if you can get on with somebody 90% of the time, live with them. It's, it's the best. It really is because... If you're great at something and your partner's great at something, you put the two together and make them combine, you'll get five to 10 times the result, which is what happened to us. She was successful on her own. I was successful on my own. But together, we've been enormously successful doing the same thing. Dynamite. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thanks, Alan. That's, uh, there's a lot of people out there that work together and uh, that don't run businesses. And I'm sure they have uh, they can resonate with, uh, with what you're saying. You know, the big problem I've got, the big problem that couples have working together uh, particularly if they've got a home-based business, it's even worse because it's got a home-based business. You're not really sure whether you're at work or whether you're at home. Yeah. And you've got to have a place to go to or put on a on business dress to go to a room or, in my case, I would put on a hat. And when I have the straw hat on, that means I'm at work. Yep. And therefore, I can't be asked any questions about what's happening with the home. Yep. If she's at work, she's got her own blue hat. And she, we don't do it now because we've got a routine. But she'd have a blue hat, which means don't talk to me about anything other than business while I'm doing this. And simple and basic things that we would do. The same, and I learned that back in the life insurance days, John, that when I was making appointments by telephone, every day, Monday to Friday, from 9 till 10 a.m., I would hit the phone, and my objective was to get five people to say, yes, Alan, you can come and see me. And I put on a straw hat because we worked in an open area with lots of other agents. They'd all be talking. And you know, when you try to make phone calls to prospects, other, other salesmen will talk to you to try and stop you because they're not making appointments. If they can stop you, we can all sort of feel good together doing nothing. So I said to everybody, look, here's my appointment hat. And I put, do not disturb. When the hat's on, please don't talk to me. And, and that's what you've got to do. You've got to separate your home life from your business life. And if you can have simple ways like that to do it, uh, then it can work really, really well. Otherwise, uh, you can be heading for the divorce course if you don't do it right. Yep. Great tip. Great tip. Alan, you've been all over the world, met some uh, really interesting people, trip to the Kremlin, all sorts of places. Where's the most interesting uh, place you've been or the most uh, interesting person that you've uh, run across? Wow. Well, there's so many of them. I, I read three weeks ago of, of an interesting person I spent time with uh, in 1981. 
guy called Peter Sutcliffe. Ah, okay. The York, the Yorkshire Ripper. Yep. And in 1981, I was doing a PR tour of the UK. And when I got to Manchester, I had about five television radio stations up there. And he got stuck on my tour with me because he was protesting about being harassed by the police. And and when I, when I saw his name on the board, when I walked into Piccadilly Radio in Manchester, I thought, this is the guy that they're trying to nail for all these murders. So I took a photograph of that board, which I still have today in my, my office. And I, I thought, one day when this is all over, I'm going to talk about this. And it wasn't until he died a couple of weeks ago that I came out and spoke about it on the on a post, but he was an interesting guy from the standpoint that he was creepy. When I was with him, he was a truck driver with a beard and I tried a bit of humor with him. And I said, what, what are you talking about on the radio today? And he was really serious. And he said, oh, police harassment. They're trying to harass me and you know, they're trying to pin these crimes on me. And I said, so, so we're both talking about body language, are we? <laughs> and I laughed. He didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was an interesting guy because on first meeting him, he was creepy. It was, and I've been trying to this day to, to nail what it was about him because he didn't move much. He was very solitary. Uh, I suppose if I had to pick the number one guy who's the most interesting was uh, when the fall of communism came in Russia uh, in Christmas 1991. Six weeks later, I arrived in Moscow and I had on my list for 11 years to go to the USSR and capture that market. Now, the big question was, how are you going to do that? And everybody asked how. The, the point is, when you decide to do something, you must never think about how. If you think about how, it's, it's finished because you don't know how. If you knew how, you would have done it already or you'd be doing it. I just I decided with Barbara, we are going to go to the USSR and run a seminar and conquer that market. There's 300 million people. And suddenly uh, communism fell. And the moment you decide what you're going to do, and most people don't start with what, you know what they start with? How? How would I how would I get this? How would I create you can't get into Russia though? You've got the it was called the USSR, they've got the, the Iron Curtain. And even if you did get in, Alan, they'd steal your kidneys, you'd wake up in an ice bath and all your kidneys would be gone. And but I've seen from Russia with love, and I've seen the James Bond movies, and I thought that looked like a great place to go. Exciting. And and so as soon as communism fell, uh, we found someone who would take us over there. Now, the way we found him was very simple. When you write in, in handwriting, not in type, in handwriting, what you want to do. You don't think about how. Now, this is the important thing. That's what my book, The Answer, is about this. That you, there's a part of the brain that if you think about how, it takes you down a dead track. In 48 hours, you've lost motivation. If you think about what you will do, what you will have, what you will become. And, and that's what Barb and I have done. We've decided what without knowing how. Now, people keep saying how, but how? How will you get the money? How will you do it? Well, you just don't tell them anymore. Yeah, you mustn't mustn't share your dreams with emotional vampires and dream stealers. Can I go? They're all over the place. Unfortunately, they're mostly in your family too. By the way, <laughs> it's really sad. You yeah. decide what you're going to do. We decided we're going to go to Russia and do this. As soon as we decided that, all we could see and hear around us was Russia. We heard. I turned the television on the day we wrote that goal, and here is a program called Animals in Siberia, on the ABC, which is the BBC. And I thought, that's a fake, look, look at this bar. I said, look, at the USSR, all these animals. It just started. It had been running for six months. Yeah. And I flipped through it. I never saw it. But the moment I put it in print, my brain, my Raz picked it up and saw it. We heard Russian accents. Suddenly I could identify Russian accents. And so we're at a party in Sydney and Barbara said, Russian accent. Six, six people away was some guy who had a Russian accent. Now, if that hadn't been written down a goal, she wouldn't have heard that accent. She would have heard something else. And so she finds this guy and we do a deal with him. Six weeks later, we rock up into in a Moscow. And we were some of the first Westerners to go there to try to do business. 
And part of the goal was to meet somebody famous and become their consultant, their body language expert to show them how to go on television because overall the, the communists were pretty dreadful on TV. And so we targeted Boris Yeltsin. He was the new president, the, the dancing drunk, as they called him. And uh, we had three appointments with Boris Yeltsin and he didn't turn up for any of them. He just didn't front up. And so we said, we've got to find somebody else. And someone said, look, my cousin, uh, he, one of his friends is the, is the new mayor of St. Petersburg, which was Leningrad. <laughs> And he's the new he's the new mayor, and he's a, a bit of a forward thinker. He thinks Russian pe business people and politicians should be like Westerners. Let's put it to him. So we put to him a one-day seminar on how to go on TV as a politician and look believable and credible to outsiders, to non-Russians. And he loved the idea. And we went up there the first day to do that one-day seminar uh, at the Winter Palace, which was incredible up in St. Petersburg. And uh, his name was Anatoly Sobchak. And we spoke with him a few times, but he didn't turn up on the day. You'll have to mention yourself, I had to rush to a meeting at, down in Moscow. The, the deputy mayor, he said, will run the meeting. And he gave me the introduction to the deputy mayor who was there, who was a guy called Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Vladimir Putin's first job in Russia was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And I said to Barbara, this is a KGB guy. This is a, we'd heard about this KGB guy. And there he was, only a young guy. It was only in his 30s and a bit suave looking. He came into the room, didn't say much sat in the front row, listened to the seminar all day. And to this day, I still see him steepling his hands together and nodding when he talks to presidents and do all, he was a great student. Yep. And he was, he was probably the most interesting guy that we've met because he, he gets a lot of bad press because Russia and America were pretty bad enemies back in the Cold War days, the fifties yep. and sixties. But uh, you know, he's a, the guy's a vegetarian. He's a philanthropist. He builds schools. He's a, he's a very gentle guy. He really is. But he's, he's definitely a, a steel fist in a velvet glove. There's no doubt about it. But he's not the he's not the the bad guy. The Americans would like everybody to believe he really isn't. The average Russian doesn't know much about what goes off, and Americans don't really care at all. So he'd be he'd be one of the probably the most interesting guy. And Yorkshire Ripper was another one of them. But being in the conference business, as you know, because you've been in there yourself, is that you get to meet all the speakers who often have some speciality. So traveling the world, we've been to 70, 75 countries for our seminars. We've been on programs with a lot of very famous and very well well-known people. So I always get there early to figure out who they are. Whenever I go for an interview at the BBC, because I lived in UK for 12 we get there an hour early to find out who's going to come in. And yeah. we met the original James Bond, who's now buried up in uh, he's buried up in uh, up in Edinburgh. And we met uh, uh, the Monty Python crew. We, one day we had a private a private sitting with uh, of YMCA with the village people on one of the TV shows. Some of the people we met were just fabulous. We, we made a point of going early to meet these people to put them in our social circle. So we'd have suddenly we've got all these these people who were fabulous that we uh, we used to watch on TV and admire. And, yep. and there's just so many. But Putin would be number one because he's he's a very misunderstood fellow. Yep, he really is. Uh, yeah. And I think on those story, you know, people like Richard Branson just say, yeah, can you do something? Just say yes and then work out how to do it later. So good. Exactly. Good. Yeah. Well, another one of my clients, Richard Branson, did some of his virgin meetings in the early stages. And he's uh, that's exactly what he's like. He said, if you start to think about how you're going to do it, he said, you become immobilized. Yeah. Just decide how, just decide what and the how will appear. And that's what happens with this part of the brain back here called the reticular activating system, the RAS. If you just decide the what, you will see the how. But most people start with the how. How would yep. I get the money? How would I do this? And they can't see how. Within two or three days, they become disillusioned and lose motivation. Yep. They go back to their normal life, which is what they were trying to get away from. Yep.
Alan, uh, you know, fantastic insight. Uh, with uh, COVID, it's pretty topical, obviously, all around the world today. Uh, yeah. What uh, has that interrupted you anyway? Have you got any strategies or something, anything that you could share with people on how you know you've dealt with uh, with uh, COVID? Well, interrupted is probably a, a pretty mild word. Uh, I'm, I'm in the events business, and for I've been in it for forty, for almost fifty years. I've been doing this, and uh, for. For about 40 years that I did at least 100 to 150 events a year and the last 10 years have been about 60 odd events a year of course with COVID there's no events the entire event business worldwide just shut down virtually overnight because I only do conferences of bigger than say three three to five hundred people and in Europe it's 10 20 30 40 thousand people in some events and that's all gone it completely closed down overnight but I decided a long time ago that if you're going to succeed financially long term you can't just have one thing. You've got to have a multiple source of income coming in. So if the economy or something affects one thing, you've got two or three or four or whatever other things that can keep you going. So I spread my wings into five businesses. The events business was one of the biggest. That was that was great, but that completely shut down overnight. Second was rock and roll music. I have one of the biggest recording shit airs in Australia. We do The Voice. We do Australia's Got Talent. We do rock and roll bands. We do orchestras. We do corporate work. That's shut down overnight as well because uh, you can't have more than one person in a room with no windows. So the, that, that, so the music business shut down. Uh, the online training business that we had, which was corporate videos and, and uh, corporate uh, training, that closed down as well because with the advent of, of uh, everybody flooding into the internet, everything got stolen. Yep. It got stolen by, you know, by foreign countries and they, just, they outbid us in our own market is what happened. So we made the decision after two days of ruminating about this that we wouldn't think about what we didn't have. We can only think about what we could do and where we would go. And this is what I found with COVID that most people who got into Australia shock. And, and there's about, there's three times the people in COVID. Uh, one third in business are going really, really well, like the building industry and home hardware and, and food. They boomed. About one third is treading water. They're about line ball. One third is between down the plug hole and completely wiped out. And uh, we were in the wiped out, certainly business for uh, for seminars and for music and for on, and for uh, our corporate training. So we decided we think about what we could do. And most people don't do this. What they do is, and COVID, they think about what they've lost or what they haven't got. And so they're looking backwards. I mean, airline pilots only look forward. Airline pilots don't have rear vision mirrors for that reason. They don't look backwards, they only look yep. forward. So we decided we would not consider what we had lost or what we couldn't do. We only think about what we could do. What we could do was, well, one of our businesses was real estate. Uh, I've been a great entrepreneur in real estate for years that we would develop real estate, residential and commercial. So we started to build houses and what hit in the last year, a, a housing real estate boom. So our real estate business has become a, a great business for us here. So we don't think much about the online business. Many come back as, as time goes on vaccines will work and we'll all be able to get out get back into some type of normality. We developed and became experts. An online video course as we were called back in the old days. I haven't done anything like that for years. COVID forces you to rethink what you're doing. Yep. If it 
focus, but people still thinking what they haven't got. That, yeah. that will cause depression. Think yeah. about what you are good at, what you can do. And I know on video at the moment, I'm, I'm in my green room here, which is fully, fully equipped to set up with sound gear. It's, I set this up. I set up two of these in anticipation of this. And we've been making videos that are rapid rate of everything we know that works, unlike anything that anybody's ever done before. And it's a really exciting business. It's an exciting new thing. And uh, it'll be launched in January coming up. So uh, we started doing what we could do and what we're good at, what we love doing, as opposed to thinking about what we hadn't got. And that's that's what we advise our clients and people that don't think about what you've lost, what you haven't got. Think about what you have got and what you can do. Yep. And that makes you look, that forces you to look for it. Don't think about how you're going to do it. Think about what you're going to do, and then you will see the how all around you. Someone once said to me, uh, John, do you know why a windscreen's 40 times bigger than uh, the rear vision mirror? And it was for exactly that reason. That's right. Looking forward. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. So just uh, can you give us any more hints on uh, what's coming up for Alan Peace uh, in 2021? Well, we... Well, we Alan and Barbara, that, I should say. Yeah, well, well we, do, we, we do a double act as it was. Uh, sometimes like today, I'll do this seminar. Yesterday we did a, we did a two-hour seminar in Japan, which we did together. Uh, the online seminar training business is... Is, is, is starting to develop, but as you know, it's still a fairly new business. So everybody's still trying to get a handle on how to do it. That's been going reasonably consistently, but we're not specifically chasing that market because there's so many other exciting things that are evolving. So you've got to ask yourself the question, which is what we're doing. What in this market of COVID? Where are people going? And what you do is you get ahead of where they're going and buy land. In simple terms, what you do and build houses, which is what we did as well this year. And... Um, for this year, we'll have our, our video online training course, which is is fabulous. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, online technology such as we're using now will develop within the next six to 12 months exponentially. So it will be a big, big thing, bigger and better than what we're doing right now. Uh, what we're doing right now is still a bit of a hybrid as to where this is going. We expect that uh, the live seminar event business will come back because people always want to go to a seminar because one of the big benefits of a seminar is the networking of people with each other, making friends, making buddies and networking things is as important, if not more important than what the agenda is on the program. Expect that will come back, but probably not towards the end of next year, maybe, depending on how the vaccines go, which is still a bit unknown. And uh, will we write any more books? We've got no more books planned to write at this point because uh, not because we don't, Think the market's there but we've written 18 and i never liked writing books that much anyway you know i never really did i never thought i was much good at it. it turns out i was pretty good at it but i never really liked it but the books if you've got a book it's it's the hub of a wheel that drives everything else because whatever business you're in uh, if a client's considering three or four candidates for a particular task or role or job and if you're all similarly qualified and you're the author of you know, the, the love life of the Mexican mountain rat or whatever it might be, it doesn't really matter Then where everybody's qualified, you're going to get the job, you'll get the recognition, you'll get that. And that's why having a book is, is such a great idea. It's, it's the new business card in a lot of ways for people. And if people love you, they'll buy it as well. So it's also can be a great side business for you as well. Even though for Barb and I, we made it a major business. It was a massive business for, for many years, still a big business, but we don't plan to write any new books for a little while. Um, we've got six kids and nine grandkids here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, and that's a, that's a, a separate business as well, just running that. Uh, and, of course, there's vacation coming up right now here in Australia, which is summertime for us. And so uh, we've got the Americans don't understand this. You know, we've got fake trees and fake snow, and we sit around in shorts and a T-shirt drinking beer, <laughs> singing Merry Christmas. <laughs> 
So, so life is still exciting. I mean, I'm coming up to 70 and I've, I've been doing this all my life. I've never really had what you might call a job. I did lots of things when I was a young fellow, but I've never really had a job. I've always been obsessed as to why people do what they do and how they do it and how the brain works. And that's why my, all the work has gone down that line. And that'll continue for the, until the day I die, which is still a long way off because I still feel like I'm getting started. That just uh, yeah, all oh, uh, brilliant, Alan. That's been uh, absolutely a pleasure. The time has just flown past, and uh, people will get enormous uh, uh, input from your thoughts. And I really do appreciate it. Have a great uh, Christmas and New Year, and to you and Barbara and the family. And it's been wonderful having you on the program today. And uh, uh, I thank you for your inspiration. Well, great to work with you again, John. It must be it's over forty years, I think, since we saw each other last. And uh, you, you don't look any older. Then again, you always look really old when you're younger, I suppose. So. <laughs> <laughs> and my eyesight's faded badly. <laughs> uh, that, that's probably a, a title for a new book. You never know. Uh, well, again, with title for a new book, how do you work out the title? Uh, write titles you, you think people pay money for and send it out to 200 people you trust and say, rate this from one to 10, and they add it all together and use their title. Don't use your own. Yeah. Alan's been uh, been fantastic. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, all the best. My pleasure, John. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to make a quick note of anything you found particularly useful. Join our LinkedIn page at www.linkedin.com slash showcase slash quantum leap business show to keep up to date with news, content and forthcoming events.